This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Uh, this correspondent is quite happy to report that some issues that have been floating around my world for the past uh, year or so appear to be resolving. The consequences of this should be that I have a little bit more bounce in my step, a little more energy, and more time to devote, actually, to producing this program, which, of course, I do love to do, but frankly, have sometimes just found it hard to find the time. That said, Mr. McMillan and I have been doing this show now, oh, God, was it 550 shows? We have not missed a program in over 10 straight years. Of course, we, we did do a few reruns. But at least the first segment has been original, we think, for pretty much 10 straight years and counting. And it is our hope that for the remainder of 2012 and certainly through 2013, we'll be even better. Because, well, I just expect fewer distractions. Hello? Huh. You don't say. You don't say. You don't say. Doug, who is that? He didn't say. No, in fact, that is not our joke of the day. But Doug, on it for 10 years, we've been looking for a way to work that bit into the program. And today was the day. And speaking of today's date, which is October 4th, let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. It was on October 4th in 1897 that boxer George Dixon, the first African-American to hold a world championship, lost his featherweight title to Solly Smith after 20 rounds. Dixon would regain it a year later. On October 4th in 1943, Heinrich Himmler, head of the Nazi German SS, praised his troops for having murdered more than one million Russian Jews during World War II. To have piled up thousands of corpses, he said, quote, and at the same time, to remain decent fellows. That is what has made us hard. This is a page of glory in our history, unquote. That, I submit, is an argument for the death penalty. On October 4th, 1944, U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower warned his World War II commanders to try and guard their men against shell shock, the debilitating psychological toll of battle, generally referred to today as post-traumatic stress disorder. I did not know that Eisenhower did that. We'll hopefully be talking a bit about the subject of shell shock as regards to the movie The Master. This correspondent finally had a chance to check it out. We're going to report upon uh, my observations on it in our second segment, possibly joined by Gary Chu and possibly by some, um, well, some guests on background. Let's, let's put it that way. The two characters in that movie feature a quote, shell-shocked, unquote, World War II veteran, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and a self-help guru, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, based uh, in no small part upon Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard's name has come up on this program in the past. We do find him to be quite a fascinating character, and we hope to talk about him at some length in segment two. But back to On This Date in History... And this one is a red-letter day. October 4th in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, 
With a diameter of 22 inches and weighing 183 pounds, it was visible at night with binoculars. Americans reacted with dismay that the Soviets had accomplished this before the supposedly superior U.S. space program. For a more lengthy discussion on that topic, we hope you will listen to our archived program where we spoke with author Matthew Brzezinski about his book, Red Moon Rising, Sputnik and the Hidden Rivalries that Ignited the Space Age. We enjoyed that very much and, uh, and would enthusiastically refer you to our own archives to listen to that if you missed it on the first go-through. In fact, if you, if you heard it in the first go-through, it might be worth a second listen. We, we have found that many of our segments are. Of course, I should note that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. We would note as a bonus that it was two years later, on October 4th, 1959, that the Soviet Union rubbed it in by launching Luna 3, which became the first probe to circle the moon. It sent back pictures of its previously unseen far side. We would draw the distinction between the far side of the moon and the dark side of the moon. The Dark Side of the Moon is a first-rate album by Pink Floyd and reflects a concept because at any given moment, half of the moon is dark and half of it's light, kind of like the Earth. But like the Earth, the part that's light and dark changes. When the moon is full and you're looking straight at the illuminated side, then yes, the dark side of the moon then becomes the same thing as the far side of the moon. We do want to add that we hope you've checked out the moon lately because uh, the harvest moon, the moon closest to the um, autumnal equinox, is generally quite a spectacle, and it's been no exception uh, this go-round. Because of the geometry of how the moon orbits the Earth, you get on successive nights what appears to be full moon after full moon. And yes, they've been pretty cool. Born on this date, in 1895, one of the great legends of screen comedy, Mr. Buster Keaton. And to explore just for a moment that concept of how many degrees of separation you are from another person. You know the old six degrees of separation or how many degrees of separation you are from Kevin Bacon? I think we can lay claim to being one degree of separation away from the legendary Buster Keaton via his co-star in the movie Limelight, Norman Lloyd, whom we were privileged to interview on this program last year. Mr. Lloyd, it so happens, is, um, Mr. Lloyd, it so happens, uh, attended a screening of the movie in which he appears with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, Limelight, last, uh, last night in Los Angeles. We're going to see if we can't bring on our L.A. correspondent, or one of them, Bruce Bronstein, to talk about the event which uh, he is going to attend on assignment for Radio Parallax. Mr. Lloyd is a, a, a supporting performer in that movie, Limelight, which is the only time in which the two greatest comedians of the silent era, Charles Chaplin and Buster Keaton, appear together. And we hope, and we hope we'll have more to say about that later on in the program. And if we should not get, it, get to it today, we'll, we'll do it on next week's show. And I suppose we're going to have to say something about the presidential debates before this hour's up. But I must say, since politicians are never held to the things they say during debates, I've always thought that, you know, debates have to be the most uh, overrated thing in the world, this side of red wine or the state of Texas. All right, our quote of the day comes from columnist Bill Vaughn, who said, A real patriot is the fellow who gets a parking ticket 
and rejoices that the system works. Our quip of the day comes from Tom Waits, who said, A gentleman is someone who can play the accordion, but won't. Our jokes of the day, let's do a few political jokes today. First of all, one from Craig Ferguson. Despite his scandals, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a popular governor, so popular that Republicans wanted to repeal the natural-born citizen law that prevented him from running for president. So I guess a president born in Austria would have been okay, but a president born in Kenya? No way. Said Conan O'Brien, Arnold Schwarzenegger was on 60 Minutes promoting his book. He said, you can't run from your mistakes. You have to confront them. Yeah, especially if they look exactly like you and keep calling you dad. And said Conan earlier this week, the presidential debate is on Wednesday. Mitt Romney's been preparing for the debate by debating a Republican senator who plays the part of President Obama. Meanwhile, President Obama's been preparing for Romney by debating an ATM machine. And finally, weighing in on the politics of this week was David Letterman, who noted that Ann Romney says that if Mitt is elected, she would worry about his mental health. Well, said Dave, there's a ringing endorsement. All right, we have two stats of the day. The first is that according to New York Magazine, fewer than half of the world's benchmark interest rates, which might affect credit cards in China or mortgages in Mumbai, are based on actual transactions. The remainder are set in a manner similar to the LIBOR interest rate with few controls and minimal transparency, making them vulnerable to manipulation. This might be one reason they call economics the dismal science. Of course, using economics and science in the same sentence is a bit of an insult to science. But lest I digress, let me note that according to the LA Times, I love Lucy although it made its last episode in 1957, still earns CBS $20 million a year through syndication fees. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week for consumers of news in Cuba last week with word that the news editor of the official Cuban newspaper, Grandma, has defected to the U.S. Apparently, Mayrelis Cuevas Gomez, age 27, traveled to Cuba last week on a business trip, then slipped across the border and made her way to Miami, making her the fifth Cuban journalist to defect to the U.S. or the U.K. in recent months. Her loss is being described as a major blow to the regime's propaganda efforts because Cuevas was one of the few people authorized to approve the paper's content every day. Yes, I, I actually have taken a look at Grandma when in Cuba. It is an official organ of the, Cuban, of the Cuban Communist Party. It is named after the boat that Castro and the revolutionaries took from Mexico to Cuba when they launched their revolution. And its stories tend to be... Um, shall we say, one-sided. I've thought of Grandma many times over the years while reading the output of publications produced by Rupert Murdoch and listening to Fox News. I.e., it's uh, got a much different slant, but is propaganda just the same? 
At any rate, it was a bad week last week for forgetting to check your privacy settings. After 3,000 people showed up to a birthday party in the Netherlands when a 16-year-old girl forgot to check private on a Facebook invitation. The partygoers apparently vandalized local shops, set a car on fire, and threw rocks and bottles at 600 police officers who were sent to control the crowd. And no, Radio Parallax has no idea why 3,000 people wanted to attend a 16-year-old's birthday party. That part remains a mystery. Finally, it was a truly ugly week last week for fact-checking your sources. With the news that a joke by the satirical paper The Onion appears to have gotten a bit lost in translation, at least once the Iranian news agency picked up the story. (laughs) Which was that The Onion reported a supposed survey showing that an overwhelming majority of rural white Americans would rather vote for Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad than President Barack Obama. Yes, apparently several days after it appeared in The Onion, the English language service of of Iran's semi-official Fars news agency republished the story as fact. Yes, it turns out the Iranian version copied the original word for word, even including a made-up quote from a fictional West Virginia resident who said he'd rather go to a baseball game with Ahmadinejad because, quote, He takes national defense seriously, and he'd never let some gay protesters tell him how to run his country like Obama does. Apparently the error was discovered, and the item was taken off the FARS news agency website. Let's talk a bit about uh, the presidential race, which we haven't done much of, because we've been so depressed by the whole subject. But it is worthy of note that a presidential debate can make a difference, especially in the TV era is why they believe that if JFK had not looked good on television against Richard Nixon in his debate, he probably wouldn't have won the election, especially with the oft-quoted statistic that uh, those who heard it on, on radio thought that Nixon did better. Of course, after that, we went 16 years without a presidential debate. Lyndon Johnson didn't want to take his chances against Goldwater. Nixon had learned his lesson. So it wasn't until 1976 when Jerry Ford squared off against Jimmy Carter that we saw uh, the two... Uh, main party contestants have at it. I do remember almost falling out of my chair when, as a UC Davis student watching that debate, Jerry Ford made the statement that there was no Soviet domination of Poland. I mean, Carter looked like he could hardly believe his good fortune. (laughs) And the moderator even tried to give Ford a chance to backpedal, and Jerry didn't take it. Said there was no domination of Poland by the Soviet Union. There would not be in a Ford administration, which I think pretty much came as news to everybody in the state of Poland. And, of course, uh, the great communicator Ronald Reagan did manage to rather spectacularly slip a punch in the 1984 debate with Walter Mondale. Reagan's age at that point was, of course, a huge issue. And he uh, defused it by saying that he was not going to exploit his opponent's youth and inexperience for political purposes, which was such a good line and even cracked Mondale up. Of course, in retrospect, there are many who think that Reagan was suffering from Alzheimer's even then which would provide a convenient explanation for a lot of things that took place during his second term, like Iran-Contra. I remember so well Newsweek at one point publishing Reagan's five conflicting, contradictory explanations of what had taken place during Iran-Contra. Started with, I had no idea this was going on, and finishing with, it was my idea in the first place. But, uh, I do think that, you know, in this particular go-round of debates, that, you know, unless Obama, like, throws a shoe at Romney... 
it is really not looking good for the GOP. Um, sadly, year in and year out during elections, uh, uh, they show polls, overall polls. You know, so-and-so's got 48% to 46%. And, of course, being this is not how we elect presidents, these are always pretty much meaningless. The B on Wednesday printed a long graph showing Obama versus Romney and how, you know, the two numbers have stacked up. But the best summary of all comes from the, uh, the editorial page Cartoon by Jack Oman from the Oregonian, which shows the United States of America as consisting of 11 swing states. Because if you will go to 270towin.com, dear listener, and I hope you do, you'll be given an interactive map which shows how we really do elect presidents, and how this election is going to go next month. There are currently divided nations. There are a lot of blue states. They're going to vote Democratic no no matter what. California's one of them. There are a lot of red states. They're going to vote Republican no matter what. States like, you know, Texas. Therefore, the entire election comes down to the 11 or 12 states, which could go either way. What this correspondent finds rather astonishing is that uh, while it looked pretty good for, for Romney back uh, in early September, there's been a huge swing in the polls of all these swing states for Obama. And at this point, for Obama to win, he has to carry Ohio and Florida, which, you know, since the Bush-Rove campaign shown that those two states can be stolen, that's doable. But he's also going to need North Carolina or Pennsylvania. Obama's surging in the polls in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania. Of course, uh, this is uh, the GOP effort is being curtailed by the fact that efforts to put voter ID laws in place apparently are being shut down judicially. Judges are saying, no, you can't do that. Well, in particular, a law in Pennsylvania was, was struck down this week. But uh, on the other hand, down in Florida, a state stolen in 2000 by the Republicans, a, a theft effort spearheaded by the then-governor, Jeb Bush, which benefited his brother, George W. Bush. You may, you may recall this episode. Well, you have to laugh with all this effort about Republicans claiming that there's all this voter fraud going on and then supplying no supportive data to prop up their contention. It's sort of funny that down in Florida, a Republican-associated uh, firm has been busted for voter fraud. Imagine that. Article for the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel repeated in the B noted that uh, election officials in at least 11 Florida counties have uncovered potentially fraudulent voter registration forms submitted on behalf of the state GOP. A debacle that has punctured a hole in the Republican National Committee's get-out-the-vote operation less than six weeks before Election Day. Noted the piece, by, by Friday, election supervisors had found dozens of forms turned in by the party that had wrong birthdays or spelling of names that didn't match signatures. In other cases, multiple forms were filled out in the same handwriting. One voter in Palm Beach was registered to an address that is a Land Rover dealership, said the election supervisor in Santa Rosa County. It was flagrant. In no way did they look genuine. Peace goes on. The controversy comes at an odd time for the GOP. Republican lawmakers across the country have proposed or enacted tough voter ID laws arguing that legislation is needed to combat voter fraud. Of course, I think down in Florida they consider it fraudulent if you try to vote while black. Writing about this, the New York Times editorial page said, The voter suppression campaigns of the Jim Crow South are back in a big way. Voter ID laws are one form of that campaign. Another is... True the vote, 
a Tea Party group that plans to send white poll watchers to black and Hispanic districts in 30 states to aggressively challenge any, quote, suspicious, unquote, voters. Noted the Louisville Courier-Journal, there's no moral or legal justification for this harassment. The Brennan Center for Justice, in fact, recently concluded after an an intensive study that in-person voter fraud, quote, simply does not exist, unquote. Well, that may be overstating the case slightly. According to the Washington Post, a new nationwide analysis of more than 2,000 cases of alleged election fraud over the past dozen years show that in-person voter impersonation on Election Day, which has prompted 37 state legislatures to enact or consider tougher voter laws, was virtually non-existent. The analysis of 2,068 reported fraud cases by News 21, a Carnegie Knight investigative reporting project, found 10 cases of alleged in-person voter impersonation since 2000. With 146 million registered voters in the U.S., those represent about one for every 15 million prospective voters. And we're very proud of the fact that on this program, we talked about these questions of voter fraud and uh, election theft via the use of electronic vote counting machines, which uh, we are convinced stole the 2004 election in Ohio, but uh, we're not going to go into all that today, but we would refer you to our archives for some discussions on that topic. Anyway, we have to take a a short break. Uh, Let's close with this comment by Jimmy Kimmel, who noted a couple weeks back that a new poll claims that 58% of Americans believe Barack Obama would beat Mitt Romney in a fist fight, said Jimmy Kimmel. I didn't realize that was an option. Adding, maybe we can wrap up this election tonight, make it a pay-per-view event. We could wipe out the national debt in one night, too. I don't know. We need to take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's do that. 